Hello all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu, and today we are going to be talking about my favorite goddess, um, Artemis, the Greek huntress. And I want to give you fair warning that there will be a lot more personal detail in this podcast, perhaps, uh, than anything else, than any of the previous ones that we've had, because Artemis has really been the inspiration of my entire research, my, the last sort of 10, 12 years of my life, um, where I've been fascinated with her and fought for her and now recently published a book called She Who Hunts. And it's a primary work in the version of her as a Greek goddess. Uh, because there, I say that hesitantly like that, because there is a lot of work on her worship at, Art, at Ephesus, and I'm going to be writing a whole separate book on that. But today we're going to celebrate her as the Greek huntress, and we are going to talk about all the ways in which I think she is ignored all the ways in which I think no not ignored because she does she does get mentions here and there but she's diminished that's a better word she's diminished and also I want to talk a little bit about I think all of the ways that she was worshipped or thought of that are more complicated or more complex than just her this virgin huntress that roams around in the wilderness i mean i think she we're going to talk about how she is that a virgin huntress roaming the wilderness because that's her um realm but i want to talk about how that empowers her and empowers her worshipers and her followers uh, particularly women but also the men who followed her and worshiped her so i want you to be a little prepared because i may go on some rants and uh, I may share some of my own personal discoveries with her and my adventures with her. Yeah, I can't say enough about this goddess. I know my students know that I talk about her all the time or every opportunity that I get. And I hope to uh, continue my research on her because there's been some additional discoveries and things that I think are connected to her. And I would like to argue that they are connected to her. So it's an ongoing love affair I've had with Artemis. It's an ongoing um, yeah, I don't even know if it's a love affair. Uh, she really is sort of the my everything at this point in time. and uh, I absolutely, absolutely will go to bat for her with classicists, with people who sometimes minimize her or like I said, dismiss her. So without further ado, let's uh, start. So uh, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, I've pulled up my little slideshow. If you're not watching this on YouTube, again, you don't have to worry at all because I will describe to you and talk to you about everything that is going on here. Um, I know I like to listen to podcasts while I'm driving or doing things, uh, but also there are people who like to visually see podcasts. So here we have a combination for everyone. Yeah. So let's begin with Artemis, She Who Hunts. Okay. I want to begin by reading uh, the hymn to Ar the Homeric hymn to Artemis, which I think encompasses not just her maidenhead, like I said, as a huntress, but also a little bit of her cruelty, 
um, a little bit of the way that she sorts out justice and her independence. So this is the Homeric hymn to uh, Artemis. What, hold on, my head is in the way here. Okay. <laughs> I sing of Artemis, whose shafts are of gold, who cheers on the hounds, the pure maiden, shooter of stags, who delights in archery, own sister to Apollo with the golden sword. Over the shadowy hills and windy peaks, she draws her golden bow, rejoicing in the chase. She sends out grievous shafts. The tops of the high mountains tremble, and the tangled wood echoes awesomely with the outcry of beasts. The earth quakes, and the sea also where fishes shoal. But the goddess with a bold heart turns every way, destroying the race of wild beasts. And when she is satisfied and has cheered her heart, this huntress who delights in arrows slackens her supple bow and goes to the great house of her dear brother Apollo, to the rich land of Delphi, where the order, there to order the lovely dance of the muses and the graces. There she hangs up her curved bow and her arrows and heads and leads the dances gracefully arrayed while all they utter their adoration and their voice singing how neat ankled Leto, Leto, Bear children supreme among the immortals, both in thought and in deed. So this is the way Homer or the Homeric hymns introduce her. If you're watching it on YouTube, I'm sorry that I keep turning it so I can read over my own head. And one of the things that I like about this hymn is that you could see how independent she is and you could see how fearsome she is. You know, the mountains are shaking, the earth is shaking, the water is shaking, everything's shaking. Um, the only thing I don't really like about this uh, hymn is that she's hunting down her own beasts. And then I will, I will talk to you guys about how she's the protectress of, or the mistress of animals, but she is still a hunter. And so hunting, um, even though for us in the 20th century, hunting comes with some, uh, controversies, I guess, uh, for those who don't hunt and don't eat meat. Um, but in the ancient world, of course, hunting was a key survival tactic and uh, everyone should and would have known how to hunt. Men, of course, but also women. And so it's not a surprise that part of her responsibilities is hunting and feeding and nourishing um, those who follow her. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of the Greek Artemis, because by the time we see her in Greece, Artemis, like I said, has been categorized. She's been put in a little box where she operates as a virgin huntress. And as, as, as I've just read to you, the Homeric hymn, these are her responsibilities. So she basically Homer tells us that she enjoys the hunt. She is fearsome in the hunt, but then she returns, you know, to Olympus and hangs out with her immortal family and relaxes, right? Which is great. It's a great way to be. And I think she's an inspiration for all of us living in the 20th century. Um, you should do you, right? Um, and then go hang out with your family and relax. Um, but I think there is some aspects that are missing. No, I know there are some aspects that are missing um, that Homer sort of uh, skims over. And one of those aspects, of course, is 
her earlier roots, her archaic roots, as I'll say. So the religion of Artemis evolved from an early tribal and perhaps even nomadic period in the Mediterranean basin. So her worship predates all other Olympians, although when we talk about Demeter and even Aphrodite, for example, these are goddesses and Hecate. These are goddesses that have such um, ancient roots that we can also claim that these goddesses um, were pre-Greek or, yeah, that's right, pre-Greek or pre-Greek pantheon. Actually, the only gods that don't have a pre-Greek heritage are the men. So there's a lot of scholarship that states that, in fact, when um, nomadic people from the north came down, at least this is according to people like Maria Gimbutas and Rian Eisler and, and other early feminist scholars who talked about how um, when the northerners, whoever they were, um, which were tribes of men, came down into the Mediterranean and took over the area of the Mediterranean, one of the things that they did is they assimilated the goddesses who ruled supreme in this area um, by marrying them off or giving them a sort of a male protector. So Hera gets married off to Zeus, Aphrodite gets married off to um, Hephaestus. Um, Artemis, ironically, doesn't get married off. So that was, I think, one of the strengths they couldn't have deleted. She gets uh, sistered to Apollo. You know, they're twins. So in a way, they're two halves of a whole. Um, and, and Athena, of course, doesn't get married off. So there are a couple of the goddesses that did not get partners, but one of the aspects of scholarship is that the goddess, these goddesses that were married off are so powerful and their worship so deeply rooted that they needed a male consort or a male partner in order for the nomadic tribes that had established themselves in the Mediterranean to feel or to create or build under this patriarchal umbrella. So Artemis then has these pre-Greek, and I say that Greek as a citizen, citizenry or Greek as a self-identity um, because Greek and Greece has a complicated history. There's a there, of course, there was a tribal history where the, where the Greeks, and I say that in quotations, were really separate tribes in different and separate kingdoms in different area of what is now modern Greece. Um, and then, you know, they, by the time they come together under that kind of Greek um, empire, that's much later in the time period of Artemis's worship. And so over that time, as at, in a way, as the Greeks sort of identify or create their own identities, they also create the identities of their pantheon. And as that happens, Artemis becomes less and less and less um, significant. Athena comes to the for forefront, of course, as Athens begins to build itself as the center of Greece. Um, and then you have a bit of Hera as the wife and domesticity, like we talked about Demeter and her power in agriculture. And, and Artemis gets sort of sw swept away into the wilderness and the mountains. And her worship is strong, but it's not as acknowledged by, you know, male philosophers, male writers. Um, and so for a long time, classicists believed, perhaps even today, that she's not as significant as, let's say, for example, Athena, Demeter, or Aphrodite. And my argument has always been that's not true. That is a male interpretation of the Greek pantheon, but it's not true. And, and we can see that in the amount of festivals that Artemis has, in the amount of places she shows up, uh, in the amount of story she has. And so 
if you dig into her worship and her rituals, and if you go and travel around Greece and see her name, uh, yes, she is, I would say, arguably as popular, if not more so than Athena, certainly as more popular, I would argue, than uh, Demeter and even Aphrodite, although Aphrodite is an interesting divinity because she has a worship that extends over into the Middle East and North Egypt, uh, North Africa. So, but <laughs> Artemis is, is, a, is a contender. And I would say, and hopefully this podcast will be an introduction to that, that she is a part of Greek life in every aspect from birth to the rituals of life to death. So her stories were founded in in nature worship. This is true. And she was one of the few early parthenogenetic goddesses who evolved into representations of the divine. Parthenogenetic means the ability to give birth or to create without just from yourself, without a partner, without a consort, without anything. And while we don't think of Artemis as having children because of this whole idea of her virginal uh, self, which we're going to talk about in a minute, because virginity in Greece does not mean the same as virginity does under Christian period later and even today. It's not about a hymen. Um, it's more about the way that you live your life. And in this case, Artemis is single and super strict about her body. And so it's not that she doesn't share her body. I mean, we don't have stories in which she shares her body, but we don't have stories in which she doesn't share her body. Her main concern, to be honest, is that is consent. So when we see her exacting her vengeance, she's really upset that people are coming into her space or watching her or her, or her nymphs or whatever without her consent. And so there is a great deal of scholarship being built now, which is I find fascinating, but whether or not Artemis and her nymphs had, you know, some good sexy time together. Um, and that is highly likely, especially if we think about her, her dances, her parties, the way that women worshiped her in the wilderness, drinking, partying, you know, having fun. And so Artemis as a virgin is not so much about the hymen, and that concept of a virginal goddess is not so much about whether or not this goddess has intercourse, but it is more about the way that she carries herself and protects her body and her duty, right? To the wilderness, to her beasts, to her nymphs, to the people who worship her. So she is thought of as parthenogenetic because she can create from her body. And sometimes, I mean, we, I don't have that much time in this podcast to go on, but there are um, overlapping assimilations of um, Artemis, particularly, for example, in Crete with Eletheia, who is a goddess of childbirth. Um, and of course, as we'll talk about, Artemis is also viewed as a goddess of childbirth. There's also Britomartis, who is another goddess that protects um, and protects children and takes care of children. So there is this connection between Artemis and childbirth and Art Artemis and childcare. Um, and that allows her some of these parthenogenetic aspects. Yeah. Uh, more importantly, though, she is a figure 
whose fluidity is fundamental to her popularity. And so what I mean is that she is about transformation and, uh, and her ability to transform and adapt and assimilate all over uh, the Mediterranean um, allows her a great wide popular worship. By the time Homer, like I said, talks, talks to us about Artemis, it is really a late, late stage transformation where Artemis is this young maiden hunter rather than the once powerful mother goddess of Minoan and Mycenaean religion. Now, the mother goddess, this idea of her as a mother goddess is a title that harkens back to a time when she was an all-encompassing earth goddess. And despite this heritage which we'll look at as her of mother goddess and protector of the earth and shaker of the earth, right? You see how um, he touches on her being shaking the earth and the water, that there's a sort of power about her that is incredible. Uh, despite that, he only really, he mainly really refers to her as Patnyatheron, which is the mistress of animals. Okay. And mistress of animals has actually a much wider reaching term, is a much wider reaching term than what. Homer lets us believe, which is this idea of she hunts and she's the slayer of beasts and she delights in arrows. So I want to talk a little bit about her birth and origins. So tradition tells us that she is born on the island of um, Delos, uh, which is where Leto settles or finds space to give birth. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Leto and um, what happens to her? Actually, no, let's talk about that now. Um, so Leto is pregnant and with Zeus's children. And again, she is running and hiding to escape Hera's wrath because, of course, we got Hera depicted as this jealous wife that all she does is sit around nagging Zeus all day. And she, after many, after looking for many places to settle down and give birth, she finally finds this island where she gives birth to Artemis first, we're told. And then Artemis, fully formed, okay, so that's sort of the way that gods are born, helps her mother gives, give birth to her brother, her twin brother, Apollo. And Apollo is actually also a super famous god in the pantheon, becoming more popular, actually, with the Roman Empire. In fact, he's the only god in the Greek pantheon that doesn't get his name changed when the Romans take over and rename everybody. They like Apollo. It's easy to say. It's an easy Latin word. And Apollo becomes the god of the sun. He is the god. Of course, he's also an archer. Um, he's god of music. But he's also, to me, in my opinion, a bit of a creep. He chases a lot of women who don't want him. Uh, he punishes a lot of women. who don't. He chases women who would rather turn into trees or animals in order, rather than be with him. And, you know, he curses Cassandra. Uh, because she doesn't want to be with him. If you've ever read, you know, the Iliad or even watched the movie Troy, um, you know, so Apollo is kind of a douche, let's be honest. Uh, I don't know how he could possibly be Artemis's brother because she would be against so much of that. But like I said, she is purposely attached to this male figure because I think she was just so powerful pre-Greek establishment that they couldn't they couldn't tame her. So they gave her a male 
consort kind of thing that took on some of her uh, qualities, such as, of course, the bow and arrow. So she, she becomes the midwife and sister in the Greek pantheon. And much of her role is around midwifery, childbirth, and much of the time she shows up with Apollo and helps him in whatever task he's doing. Um, but there is a lot of Artemis on her own as well. One of my favorite tasks that she performs after she um, gives helps her mother give birth to Apollo and make sure that her mother is safe is that she returns, she goes back and kills everyone. Yeah, we're going to talk about at least two, three people who um, who didn't give her mother space to rest and give birth, but also who tried to hurt her mother. So Artemis is very protective of her mother, very, in the sense that anyone that, in fact, she kills, she kills for her mother and without remorse and without trial or jury. She, you hurt my mother or you threaten my mother or... In the case of Niobe, for example, you brag that you're better than my mother, then you're dead. So in one way, what I really like about this relationship is how merciless Artemis can be in defense of her mother. And she, in fact, she can be quite merciless often. And so there is this characteristic of her that is a bit frightening, uh, which I know some of you might be like, that's not fun, but. I really found, find a sense of empowerment in a female divinity that does not apologize. And I don't know how to say this as gently as possible, but I think there are times in lives, but as women, you know, we're raised to always apologize. We always say sorry, right? There's all kinds of skits about that. Um, and I think it's empowering to find a history of the sacred feminine in which women, certainly goddesses, but inspiring women, do not apologize, do not feel the need to explain themselves, even in their decisions. And so when Artemis acts, she's not explaining herself to anyone. She's not asking for permission, and she's unapologetic. And so I think these characteristics have really drawn me to her because I was raised, you know, in a culture where asking for permission is the polite thing to do, needing the validation of others or external validation before you make a decision is the smart thing to do, supposedly. And, you know, if you do something that may not be viewed as acceptable, apologizing and making sure that you're shamed and sorry enough. And so, you know, when I played roller derby, one of the things that I learned very quickly when you're playing roller derby is to stop saying sorry, you know, because I would hit people. I mean, the purpose of roller derby is to hit people. So I would hit them in, in the game, <laughs> not, not in real life, but in the game. And then I'd be like, sorry, sorry, you know, and um, I realized how much sorry was a part of my vocabulary. And I don't, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be polite to one another. Of course we shouldn't. And there's value to apologizing and, and taking responsibility. But, you know, in a game where the purpose of the game is to hit people out of your way and you're doing that and then apologizing, it really showed me just how much 
we are conditioned to apologize, just how much we're conditioned to say sorry. So we used to have this joke in roller derby. You know, there's no sorry in roller derby. Yeah. And so I really learned early on, right? In that, in my seven, eight years of playing roller derby to stop saying sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and so, sorry, I thought I'd sidetrack there, but Artemis was really a part of that, that growth for me. And even now today, when I begin an email or when I begin talking to someone or whatever, and if, if, if it's always like a sorry, I go back and I go, okay, no, how can I say this by taking out the sorry, right? Um, so I think it's important that we have idols in a way or people we look up to or divinities we worship where sorry is not required. So there are examples of how you can make a decision, act on it, and move on with your life. So Artemis is not just a maiden. She is not just a goddess of classical mythology or the sister of Apollo, but she's a much tougher and more primitive type of deity, which was widespread, especially in uh, the Peloponnesus and the, like I said, the Dorian, among the Dorian peoples, so pre-Greek. She is, in fact, the most popular goddess of Greece, at least in the cult of the simple rustic people. And so the Artemis that I want to really talk about and point out is the Artemis that is a goddess of wildness. She's not touched or altered by the hands of men. She roams the mountains and the forests and in the shadowy groves and the wet meadows, she hunts and dances together with her nymphs who have faith in her as a fearless protector. That's a little quote out of my book, but also really what I think. Um, that's, the, that's the kind of Artemis that I want to talk about. She's not just a fearless hunter. She is also a protector. And in fact, she spends a lot of time with her nymphs and with other women that worship her in the forest dancing. There's a lot of dances. Much of this dancing is orgiastic you know, and of, of indecent character, as Homer or other ancient philosophers would say, the dancers were used to be depicted wearing masks. And it's really a similar dance and orgiastic celebration that often classicists talk about for Dionysus. In fact, Dionysus and Artemis are both gods of the wilderness, gods of the outside of the city, gods of uh, orgies and drinking and partying. And Dionysus, I mean, he has his own mythology, which is quite fascinating. But Artemis is really a predecessor of this. And really, her realm is this area of the wilderness. I should tell you that in the ancient Greek mind, the Greeks saw the city as a place of rationality, a place of thinking, of building, of masculine power. The Greeks saw the city as a place of enlightenment. And the cities used to have walls, you know, like if you watch literally any uh, film of sort of medieval, the medieval period or pre-medieval period, you can see that um, spaces, especially in Europe, cities used to have these walls around them. And the walls encompassed in the Greek mind, rationality and thinking and all these great things. 
And everything outside the wall was considered wilderness. So especially, of course, outside the wall, there wasn't much. There was usually farmland and then forest and mountains. So in the wilderness is really literally where the wild things are, right? So everything that was unrational, unthinking, uneconomic in some way, unmasculine, unpatriarchal because it could not be controlled because it was nature and nature was very difficult and continues to be very difficult for humanity and especially mankind to control despite the idea that we can predict the weather and predict nature so the greeks and actually many other peoples the romans and, and later others saw the wilderness or the forest as a place of darkness, of unknown, of mystery, and often in a negative connotation in the sense that you could get lost in the wilderness and there are things out there that you can't control or fight. And in fact, fairy tales, um, which we'll talk about you know, in coming an upcoming podcast, but fairy tales were stories of warning about going into the wilderness or outside of the city. But they were stories of warning, of course, in a more... Um, modern period, right? By that, I mean, you know, a thousand years ago or so. But in the time of Artemis and in the Minoan Mycenaean time, you would go into the wilderness to be wild, to be yourself, to allow your non-rational mind, non-thinking mind to explore and participate in, like I said, these dances and these orgies and drinking and things that would be looked down in the city especially for women, things that would look down, be looked down in the city would be allowable in the wilderness. And the reason why so many, the main ads, for example, of Dionysus and the dancers of Artemis wore masks was this, this idea of the shadow self or this idea of allowing your true, by wearing a mask, you actually are allowing your true self to come out because you are indistinct. So everyone would wear similar masks but they would be indistinct from one another. And so you're really becoming this part of, you're, you're really releasing this part of yourself that is unnamed, unidentified, unegofied. You know? If you think about the complexity and the psychology of that, especially at a time, sort of pre-Greek time, when there was no conversations about psychologies and the id and the ego and superego, but the ancients had such a, finger on the pulse of existence, on the pulse of humanity. They understood that every now and then you need some time in the wilderness. You need some time outside of the city. You need some time outside of the rational mind to just be. And Artemis is the leader of this, but also the one who, who watches this and protects those who participate. So a great deal of, of power and influence, I think, that is not discussed or um, mentioned, you know, I think that people always talk about, oh, they had these wilderness parties and they, they're so dismissive, uh, particularly in classics. They're dismissive of these as these, oh, wild women, you know, tearing apart whatever animals or their stories, you know, of wild, the women becoming so wild that they tore apart deer and that they ate their hearts, you know, still beating. Like there's all these, the imagination of men, of what women do when the men are not there is quite fantastic, isn't it? 
Um, and it's the same today, right? When, when men ask, you know, or are wondering what do women do when we have sleepovers, when we have get togethers. And my answer to anybody who ever asked me that there's been a lot of men who have asked me these questions, friends or colleagues. And I was like, everything you imagine that we do, we do. <laughs> uh, there's always this sort of fast. And so one of the ways that we have information about these so-called orgiastic parties is through male philosophers or male poets who imagined what would happen in the forest or heard rumors or stories or etc but men were not allowed to join as in the artemis parties in the dionysus i may and the maenads um dances for a long time men were not allowed to join and there's lots of stories of men spying and getting caught and getting killed but there is a history of men also joining in some of these parties in the wilderness, a pre-Greek history and a Greek of, uh, sorry, a, a history where a group would participate in some of these wild dances and wild parties. So I don't want to say that men were excluded. I think they became more and more excluded as men took over the city landscape to such a severity that women had no space to explore themselves. And so then they created this threat. They created these legends that if you spy on the women while they're doing this in the wilderness, you'll be killed, you know, a, a kind of protection for themselves. And I think in many ways, this is also why the mythology of Artemis is around men who are sneaking up on her getting killed because it's this threat that you are watching something without consent and there's consequences. So in many ways, Artemis is a protectress of women. Um, and I think the, the first Western example of an independent woman who's just doing her. And I say that carefully because, of course, the Greeks decided that they were the beginning of Western civilization. And because so much of Western civilization is based in Greco-Roman culture. And so Artemis doesn't fit quite fit into what they were trying to peg everyone else. You know, Athena, she's very dutiful. You know, she's a goddess of war, of justice. She's very serious. Um, she's very androgynous. And in many ways, she represents men. I've never felt the connection with Athena as a woman because she was shaped in such a way, especially by the Greeks and later on by the Romans to, and later on by, you know, Renaissance and Enlightenment scholars to be this female embodiment of masculine virtue. I don't know if that makes sense, um, but she is very harsh on women. She never protects them. She never shows up. Um, when we look at Medusa in a few weeks, I'm going to talk about the only time that Athena does anything. And it's still sort of controversial for women. So she's not really a female-centered goddess or a goddess who cares about women. Um, Demeter also, not so much, doesn't really care about women so much as much as she does of her daughter. Persephone, of course, doesn't care much of women either. Hera, very, very little interest in women or women's empowerment. And in fact, she becomes a symbol of obedience, nagging, domesticity. So, and Aphrodite, of course, becomes a sexualized symbol of a woman whose lust controls. She becomes vain. She becomes um, jealous. She has all these characteristics thrown, into her, thrown on her, which 
in fact, Aphrodite, I will argue, did not originally have. So Artemis remains, survives, even if I can say, as the only goddess that gets to do what she wants and live her life. And in fact, Callimachus writes this hymn about what she asks her father. And I think this hymn is really foundational because she is a goddess that wants all the things. So Callimachus writes, beginning with the time when sitting on her father's knees, Zeus, she was still a little maid and she asked him, so she was a young child. She asked him and she spoke these words to her, to him. Of course, you have to suspend your imagination here because she was born fully formed from Leto and helped her mother deliver Apollo. And yet Callimachus writes of her as a child, but okay, let's suspend our imagination. So this is what she asks her father. She says, give me to keep my maidenhood. So my virginity father forever and give me to be of many names. Okay. And that Apollo may not fight with me <laughs> and give me arrows and a bow. Give, let me be the bringer of light and give me the gird to gird a tunic with embroidered border reaching to the knee. So that, that refers to her tunic that she wears. She wears this short kind of tunic, which um, is unlike any of the other goddesses wear a much longer matronly tunic. Um, that I may slay wild beasts and give me 60 daughters of Oceanus for my choir, all nine years old. So she wants young maidens, all maidens. Give me for my handmaidens 20 nymphs who shall tend me well and take care of my buckskins and anything that I shoot, a lion or a stag, and who will tend my swift hounds. And give to me all the mountains. And for the city, assign me any city, even, even whatever you want. Okay. And her father smiled and bowed his assent. So I want you to imagine young Artemis sitting on her father's lap and saying, so I want this outfit. And then I want Apollo to never bug me again. And then I want to be the bringer of light. So super powerful salvation symbology. I want to have this many girls that are my friends. I want to have this many nymphs that are my servants. I want to, them to take care of all the things so that I don't have to take care of anything and including my dogs. And I want you to give me all the mountains. And if you want to give me a city or two, yeah, I'll take that too. Okay. And Zeus assents, which means he assents. He gives her consent and he says, yes, I'm going to give you all of these things, all of the things that you want. So it's so important that we see Artemis not just as a young maiden who's hunting, but she is a woman who makes her own life, who demands certain aspects in her life, who gets what she wants, and then goes off and does exactly what she said she was going to do. Um, so this is an incredible female symbol. For a time when, you know, Athenian women couldn't even go outside. So her story fascinates men because she's so untamed and wild. And I think in many ways supports women because she is unforgiving in her assault or murder or killing of any man that does not respect her space. One of the names that I think people don't talk about her is, of course, Artemis' savior, Osatera. 
she is really salvation. She saves, and not salvation, sorry. And I don't mean salvation so much as an afterlife in the way that we think about it in Christianity, but savior in the sense that she saves people in this life and then she saves them from illness or disease or even an ugly death. So, you know, like I, like we talked about before, the Greeks were not too big on what happens in the afterlife. They all thought they would go to the underworld. And for a long time, especially in the early Greek period, the underworld was not a great place. Later, you know, as we as they established the Eleusinian fields, um, there was more of a heavenly space or heaven-like space where good Greeks would go and live a, a better existence than in the underworld. But for most of the time, the Greeks are not as concerned with what happens after death because they know they're going into the underworld. But living a life and honoring the gods and living a life of heroism, if that's the right word, and piety and duty and honor was very, very important. Living a life of honor and having your death and burial honorably was key to Greek existence, both male and female. And so Artemis plays a key role in that because she assists, she helps in living that kind of life. So for example, I don't know if many of you know that she helps Theseus defeat the Minotaur. Um, So that's sort of a legend that hasn't made it, you know, I talk about that extensively in the book, but that's one of these sort of side legends that people don't always talk about. I don't know if you've ever heard that she's worshipped by the surviving Trojans. So um, the Trojans who who survived the Trojan War, they established themselves in several spaces and they they worship Artemis. Um, There are other, for example, places, there's an island called Syria, where we're told the sun always shines and there's good land and no one grows old or has any sickness. On this island, Apollo and Artemis come with their arrows and give all the citizens of this island an easy and peaceful death, according to the Odyssey. So there's this island where everybody lives these perfect lives, these wonderful lives. They don't grow old. They don't have sickness. But at some point, because the Greeks only allow immortals to be immortal. At some point you have to die, but it is here that Artemis and Apollo show up with their arrows and they give you a peaceful death, a good death. And Artemis is often at the center of stories about painless death. Many of her, many of her worshipers, for example, prayed to her for a merciful sleep. In the latter part of the Odyssey, for example, Penelope wishes that Artemis would give her the peace of death and pierce her heart with a golden arrow and ease her pain. So Artemis is a key player at the end of your life, but also like we've talked about earlier at the beginning of your life. So because she was the one that women prayed to when they were giving birth and was thought of as the assistant of giving birth. And as you know, giving birth in the ancient world, well, even today, it it comes with certain risks. And so Artemis protecting the birth itself and the birthed child is a key savior, if I can use that word here, of bringing life into the world. And then as you you age or you get older, everyone wants a more peaceful death or a, a gentle death. And she is a key player here at the end of your life when you pray to her for a merciful sleep or a merciful death. And so in 
in this in incredible, incredible way, Artemis is at the beginning and at the end. She is life. She gives life or protects life and then takes away life in a calm, peaceful, and kind manner. I can't state that, I think, enough, the importance of that. There is no other divinity in the Greek pantheon that has this responsibility and that is so well known for having this responsibility. And so I think Artemis, as sort of the giver of life and the giver of death, encompasses all aspects of existence or all aspects of humanity. So I'm going to talk about just a few festivals and initiations of Artemis because there are so many and I go into detailed description in my book, She Who Hunts, about many of the others. But I want to mention at least some of my favorites, okay? Because I think they're fascinating because I think you might find them fascinating. So I want to start with uh, a Pankomeni or the Artemis Strangled or the Strangled Goddess, which is one of the surnames of Artemis. And this is an initiation rite or an initiation goddess or an initiation embodiment, sorry, of Artemis. So tradition claims that in the time um, of the neighboring, in the time of the neighborhood of the town of Cafe in Arcadia, there was this place where there was a grove, a sacred grove to Artemis. Okay. And some of the children were playing and they had playfully tied a rope around the neck of her statue and were kind of joking around and claimed she was strangled. As a result, the children were stoned to death by the villagers for disrespecting the goddess and disrespecting the statue, which makes sense. You know, you're not supposed to um, disrespect a statue of the god, but they were stoned to death. And sometime later, the women of this town were struck with the disease and all their children were stillborn. So the villagers saw this as a sign of the wrath of Artemis for stoning the children. And the oracle ordered that the children be buried properly, <clears throat> excuse me, and that annual sacrifices be made to them since they were wrongly killed. Okay. So from then on, Artemis was called Apkamene, which is strangled. Um, the legend then embodies this role of the goddess as, as a protectress in children's lives. Because she also has a position of bringing up boys or rearing up boys and rearing up children. So she has often been seen as the protector of children. Anytime that children are hurt, is some, you'll find that Artemis is there and that um, she's somehow connected to their protection. However, this, this terminology, Artemis strangled, actually comes from an earliest use of this term that arises from the image of hanging vegetation deities on trees. So this traces her roots back to the Minoan period before Artemis was attached to this, to this name in Greece. And often actually, um, scholars will argue that this idea of strangulations for the Greeks meant giving no blood. So there is this interpretation that shedding blood, right, is a communication between men and gods or heroes and gods that you shed your blood for the gods. However, um, strangulation as a form of human death evokes horror in the ancient world. And of course, as a form of suicide, um, strangulation and the option to give no blood in the face of violence 
such as rape or unwanted uh, defloration, was seen as traditionally appropriate. And what that means is, how do I put this? Sorry. If you were assaulted in some way that was dishonorable, then committing suicide through strangulation, which gives no blood to your tormentor, was a way to gain your honor back. Oh, sorry. That's a hard one to explain. Um, the idea that shedding blood was for, you know, in, in an honorable way was for the gods or in a battle for the gods. So if you, if you die without shedding blood, you keeping that to yourself. And so in that way, you are almost like taking vengeance on the injustice that has happened to you. If someone has, let's say, taken your blood, especially as a woman by raping you or taking your virginity or whatever. So this is another sort of side villaging. Uh, folklore around why maybe Artemis has this surname of Artemis Strangled. There's also other scholars that talk about how Artemis doesn't, doesn't shed any blood in the hunt or in sex or in childbirth or in any way. And so fundamentally then she's strangled in that way, in that, in that way, she doesn't shed her blood, right? Uh, She doesn't bleed, but she makes others bleed which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, she makes others bleed for whatever crime. She makes others bleed for infringing on the crime of others. Uh, there are also other scholars that say that Artemis being strangled and without blood allows her to uh, lead in the transition of young maidens or young women by initiating them into that new phase of life where, she, where a woman gets her menstrual cycle or marriage or childbirth, and particularly menstrual cycle and childbirth, although Artemis is often invoked at weddings as well. But in menstruation and childbirth, because this deals with blood, Artemis is both bound, strangled, doesn't give blood, and can release. So there's a duality in her position. She's she remember how I was telling you guys that she's the goddess of transformation. Well, here her position is transitory. She's a transitory agent that helps a child become a woman or a child become a man, because we'll talk about her in Sparta as well. And then, of course, helps in the bloody aspect of childbirth as well. Yeah, So the releaser of the girdle. One of the ways I think that she could also be relatable in marriage is that often, of course, the night of marriage or whenever, a woman loses her virginity and there is blood. And so in many ways, the fact that Artemis is strangled, I say that in quotation marks, or bound in a way that she does not shed blood, allows her to transform those who are shedding blood at different parts are different moments in their lives for different rituals, etc. This makes her extremely powerful. As if that wasn't enough for the complexities of the roles that Artemis played, her worship as the bear of Varan is actually even more interesting. So, and leads to actually her worship um, as Artemis Teropolis in Sparta. But let's talk just briefly about Artemis Veronia. 
she has two ancient sanctuaries. One, of course, at the ancient site of Ravon, from where she gets her name, and the other is in the heart of Athens on the Acropolis. So it's actually, you know how you see the images of the Parthenon, the Acropolis in Greece, in Athens. There's lots of beautiful images of this um, structure. And then if you are, I don't know how to explain this in, without visual, <laughs> but if you just go down from where uh, the Acropolis is to, to the right, there is a smaller center. Right now, actually, there's nothing there. It's not really even identified, to be honest, um, or labeled. But this was the place where she was also worshipped as Artemis of Ravon. Um, and it's actually was a place that had a great deal of activity, even more activity than um, the rest of the space. But we don't get to hear very much about it um, in history and certainly in mythology. Anyways, um, so there's these two places. And Ravon is just, it's outside of Athens, about an hour, an hour and a bit outside of Athens. And I actually wrote a whole story about arriving at Ravon with my mother on my blog on iMainad because our adventure to get to the sacred site was so insane. And finally arriving there and then, of course, finding the museum because the site is in one place and the museum is in another place. Anyways, if you're interested, <laughs> I don't want to tell you that story again, but it's uh, it's part of my travel blog on iMainad. It was the first time I went to Greece with my mother and it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> but this is one of our favorite memories is, is finding the sacred site. It was so, so nuts to find it and to, to get there. But we finally arrived anyways. Uh, the site there um, used to have a procession that was held every four years. And this procession actually moved from the Temple of Artemis Ravonia to Athens. So people walked. I would say, I, oh, I don't even know. I would say that would be hours of walking from one to temple to another because it's about an hour drive, 45 minutes outside of Athens. And then you have to walk to find the actual temple itself. So these processions were long and massive. Every four years, there was a procession in order, uh, in honor of Artemis that went from Ravon to um, Athens, to the Acropolis in Athens. Um, and again, this is an interesting way of looking at Artemis as a dual goddess, a goddess that is sort of suburban and citizen, uh, city-like. So she comes from the wilderness or the suburbs of Ravon, which is outside of the main city of Athens, and, and then into Athens as well. So she really, she really stands between, like I said, she's a goddess of transitions, of transformation. She really stands between the outside and the inside you know, the wild and the rational, um, the suburbs and the city kind of thing. So an especially influential goddess. Uh, the site, of course, was initially excavated by John Papa Dimitrio in 1948, but he died in 1963. Um, and so the site went dormant for a while. And then finally, they began excavating it again. And they found hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of small statues of children, um, animals, all of these hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of offerings. So if you walk through the museum, you can see all these offerings. So what people used to do is if a child had died or if a child was alive and they wanted it to be blessed or some kind of 
um, they wanted to make some kind of animal offering, what they would do is they would pay someone to create a little statue or a larger statue, depends on how much money they had. And they would offer that statue or place that statue in the temple of Artemis. And the belief was that this statue was sort of a, a payment, a, a supplication for her protection. So this temple was full and this excavation was so important because they found so many of these statues. So we could really see how powerful and influential she was and how much people invested literally economically um, and emotionally, of course, and spiritually in praying for her support. This version of Artemis at Veron is also associated with Torian Artemis, which is a mystical orgiastic group or worship, uh, at least in the earlier times, that included human sacrifice. So you can see how there are these generational changes, both in her name and her association. But according to Greek legend, there was in Taurus... Taurus, a goddess, and then the Greeks identified that with Artemis, to whom all strangers that were that were thrown off the coast of Taurus were sacrificed. So here we have a human sacrifice in which people or strangers outside of the village, outside of the community, were thrown off and they were offered um, sort of it echoed a bit the sacrifice of Iphigenia in the Trojan War where she's not technically thrown off a coast, but she's sacrificed for Artemis or said to be sacrificed for Artemis because Agamemnon had pissed her off. And in many legends, actually, um, Iphigenia is killed. And then as human sacrifice became less popular, there are stories that have, that story has been edited. And they say that Artemis at the last moment, just before Agamemnon stabs his daughter, replaces her with a deer and then takes Iphigenia to live with her as one of her followers or one of her nymphs. So there's some fascinating history at Vravon and a long, long-held uh, belief and a long-held practice of worship to Artemis, both violently so or bloody, and also this massive procession that happened every four years. Um, this was also the place where initiation rituals for young girls were thought to have taken place. So um, young girls were called she-bears and they would come to Vervon and this is where they would um, dress and perform as bears and then sort of come into their, their how do I say this, their womanhood. Uh, so this was a rite of passage for young girls. Um, and bears are actually, I mean, I go into details in my book more about bears and how bears and the bear mother goes back to the Neolithic period and has this association with, of course, protectress, but also a wild, right? The, a bear mother is some, not someone you want to meet in a forest or anytime uh, because a bear mother is both tender, but also immensely violent in protection of her cubs. So all of these images were linked to the initiations of Ravon and to the initiations of young girls into womanhood or motherhood. And so Artemis is often referred to as the ancient bear goddess and her young women that are being transformed are little she bears. And sometimes in the procession, there are stories where the girls would dress as bears, uh, would call themselves bears. So there's a lot of bear imagery that takes place. Um, and then when girls come of age, 
they are seen as especially hormonal or they're seen as sort of wild, you know, when they first get their period, they go through that. If you have a teenage girl or you had a preteen girl, um, you know what I mean? Or if you know one, there's a sort of time of, yeah, wildness is a good word, just wilding out, like they say. Um, And so this was often associated with a young girl gives up that wildness to become a young woman. So in a way, she does lose that wildness. But of course, as you know, later on, women would perform in the dances of the wild. So you still maintain some of that wildness. But there's this transformation that's supposed to happen around 10 or 12 years old uh, when girls are said to be bears at Fravonia for Artemis. And that's when you, you're supposed to give up the wildness of your childhood and then um, become a young woman. Yeah, This is also where uh, before marriage, all Athenian girls would come to give offerings to Artemis. So childish things like toys or dolls or anything that they kept for their childish, so-called childish part of their lives, they would leave at Verona. And so again, like I said, we found thousands and thousands and thousands of artifacts of all of these mothers and women and young women leaving things at this temple um, as an offering to Artemis for her protection for her saving them from harm. You know, young women were very vulnerable, especially to older men or let's say bad men. Um, and so the protection of Artemis at Fravon is, is unparalleled um, and her, her worship there is unparalleled. Yeah. This, of course, takes me to her worship by the Spartans as uh, Artemis Tarapolis, which is also kind of uh, attached to this Taurus um, idea of Artemis. And of course, uh, tower means bull. Um, and this also, oh my goodness, I can take you back. This also could be or connected back to the horns, the bull horns of the horns of, of, of creation and of divinity of Minoan Crete, for example, and, and my, the Mycenaean period. So there's a lot of symbolism and imagery here, uh, which I know I want to go in, but I I don't want you to be here for two hours with me. Um, So if you want to know more, please feel free to purchase the book um, and, and, and see all of the details and the references and the quotes of ancient peoples who worshiped her. But I do want to talk about her and Sparta as Artemis or Thea um, or goddess who stands erect, you know, they call her, uh, which is sometimes later understood as a phallic symbol, but that might be just because so many boys participated in this ritual, right? So it was said that her image, her statue was brought or stolen from Vavon and consequently drove men mad. Um, and that really explains, at least for Athenians, the, the quarrel and competitions among some of the earliest tribes of Sparta that led to so much violence and death around the altar of Artemis. Yeah. So after a sla- after the slaughter, of anything on her um, altar, her altar would be soaked in blood in Sparta. So there's this long, long imagery uh, of blood. And even here in Sparta, there would be citizens who were selected uh, by lot and they would be human sacrifice, okay? Now, of course, eventually this tradition becomes seen as barbaric. And instead of boys or people or an individual that was um, 
um, sacrificed, what happens is the young boys that are being initiated um, whip themselves or cut themselves in a way that their blood sprinkles the altar. And so there's some, there's some controversy here because in the beginning, there were some scholars who argued that um, it wasn't the boys that were doing it to themselves. Someone was doing it to them, like whipping them or scourging them. Then there are scholars that say, no, it wasn't the boys. It was warriors who were doing that. So instead of one of them dying or being sacrificed for Artemis, they would all shed a little bit of blood. And so they would, they could all bleed together. Yeah. But this really plays into that Spartan mentality and ideology that um, involves physical sacrifice in the sacred place of the divine because Spartans needed to bleed. And remember that Artemis doesn't bleed. And so there's a lot of blood imagery associated with her and a lot of very violent, well, in, in human sacrifice, but more so violent and bloody um, aspects of her worship. Yeah. And so this initiation rite is mainly for boys. So I want you to see that it's not just women. You know, Artemis is not just associated with young girls who are being initiated into womanhood. Artemis is also associated with young men being initiated into warriorhood, right? And so in the Taurian Artemis, for example, or the cult of Artemis Tauropolis, um, this worship of blood or bloody sacrifices continues. Um, in fact, there's some rumors that when people looked at her statue, Artemis uh, Tauropolis, men especially, they would go mad. And so one of the ways that they would treat this madness was or cure this madness was if you gave her a worthy gift. And of course, the worthy gift was your blood. Yeah. So lots of rites of passages associated um, with uh, the goddess. And at this uh, place of worship, there's also a long association with bulls, bull writings, the killing of bulls. There's a belief that at some point, human sacrifice became replaced with a bull sacrifice. So, I mean, if you want to go into more detail, please, like I said, feel free to um, read it in the book, but because I go into great detail there, but I want you to see how well, I guess the one thing I want you to see how bloody her worship was, but also how willing, because, you know, the strangled goddess is bloody. The, the bear of Veron is bloody. The Taurus or Tauropolis uh, Artemis is bloody. It's interesting how willing people were to offer their blood and how bloodthirsty she was. Um, you know, again, she was not a kind, generous young maiden, just, you know, romping around. Um, she was quite a vicious divinity, okay? a divinity that um, protected harshly, but also had high expectations, yeah? which leads me to one. There are many festivals, like I said, that I write about in the book, but this festival um, of Elaphoglia uh, is one of my favorites. So this festival, so I wanted to talk about it. So this festival takes place on the sixth uh, day of March or April. And it's probably named after the Elaphus cakes um, 
in the story of the Samian rescue of the 300 boys that's told by, to us by Herodotus. So this is a, a festival that celebrates a rescue by Artemis of 300 boys. So let me tell you the story quickly. The Corinthians had captured 300 sons of, nor, of, of noble Corsarians, and they were offering them as eunuchs in the city of Aliettes. Okay. When the men that were escorting the boys, this troop of 300 boys, stopped in the city of Samos, the Samians were horrified to discover that these boys were going to be taken and they would become eunuchs, which means they'd be, they'd be castrated. So in an attempt to save the boys from their fates, the Samians told the boys to hide in the sanctuary of the temple of Artemis in Samos. When the Corinthians heard that the boys were hiding, right, they knew they could not enter the sanctuary to retrieve them. You cannot enter the sanctuary of Artemis. So they blocked all the food and supplies going to the sacred temples, intending to starve them out. In response, though, the Samians invented a festival which they continued to perform well into Herodotus's lifetime. So Herodotus, this is a little quote from him. He says, each evening as night closed in during the whole time that the boys continued there in the temple of Artemis, choirs of youths and virgins, girls, were placed about the temple, carrying in their hands cakes made of sesame and honey, these elephas cakes, in order that the, course, that the Corsarian boys might snatch the cakes and so get enough to live upon. So basically every night, boys and girls would surround the temple and do this dance with cakes in their hands. And the boys who were inside, let's say, inside the, the temple realm space could reach out and grab these cakes from their hands. Okay, And of course, the Corinthians could not attack the young boys who were doing a fest or girls that were doing a festival for Artemis. So they created this ingenuous way in, in sorry, engine inventive way in which the stolen boys could eat. So eventually they, they did this for so long, this dance that the Corinthians were forced to give up their ownership of the boys and just leave Samos altogether. And then once the boys were free, the Samians returned them back home uh, to Corsera but the, the festival and this idea of salvation uh, and ingenuity, that's the word I was looking for, continued in honor of the goddess for generations later. So an ingenious way of saving these 300 boys from being castrated and sold off in the name of Artemis, in the temple of Artemis, um, and in honor of her. So fantastic. And then, of course, this festival was a big, big party for a long time for many generations. So. Like I said, there's so much more. Uh, and I think maybe now, maybe you can get a feel for why I'm so passionate about this goddess. Cause I feel like there's so much that people don't know about her worship and her rituals and how much people loved her and how much she was responsible for protecting them. And I just, I think that she's often dismissed, which of course brings me to one of my last slides, which is Artemis in popular culture. So if you think about Artemis in popular culture, please let me know if you come across anything. But I'll tell you this. If you look up Artemis in popular culture, just Artemis in modern day, you'll find a few things. The first thing is the series of books called Artemis Fowl, which is interesting. And I've never read them, but they're sort of young adult and they seem to be very popular. But the, the weird thing about it is that Artemis, Artemis Fowl is a male, a boy, young boy character. And, you know, he goes on these adventures. And like I said, it seems to be a very popular book. And I think that Disney even made it into a movie. But it's about a boy. Okay. 
The next thing you might find that I found came across is this movie called Hotel Artemis, which I found really fascinating. But it's really uh, an action film that takes place in futuristic LA. And there's the action takes place in this hotel that's Hotel Artemis. But there's really literally no reason why or no explained reason why this hotel is called Artemis and it has nothing to do with Artemis at all. Um, the other and I think most popular version of Artemis that you might see is in the Percy Jackson series. And in one of the Percy Jackson films, um, there, Artemis is sitting beside Zeus and Hera, but she is mostly inactive. Uh, Rick Riordan doesn't really give her anything, really. Uh, sort of standard, classical, one-dimensional storyline. Um, so Artemis really has been dismissed and ignored for generations. There is this fantastic film festival, which honestly, I just learned about recently. It's called Artemis, uh, the Artemis Women in Action Film Festival. And it was, uh, there was one in April um, for a few days. And it's basically a festival of movies that have strong female characters, which I think is fantastic, but never really heard of it before. Um, from what I understand, it's it's taken place the last couple of years. So hopefully it's something that will pick up, um, pick up popularity. I think it's a great idea. And I think the name Artemis really encompasses all strong women. I think it's probably, she's the best goddess in the Greek pantheon for that. Um, so I'm very excited about this. It's called the Artemis Women in Action, <clears throat> excuse me, Film Festival. Um, and there are some great films that were, for example, viewed in 2021. And I'm excited to see what they'll do in 2022. Hopefully they'll, they'll hold it again. So that's really the only aspect of Artemis in popular culture. I mean, like I said, she shows up every now and then in some of these stories as a side character, but it's always the same thing. If I was to pick someone to kind of embody uh, Artemis in popular culture, I think Kira's knightly portrayal um, in King Arthur as a huntress, as a Celtic huntress, is really both visually and narratively fitting, I think, for Artemis. I think that's probably when I saw her as huntress in King Arthur, even though that movie was not great. Um, I was like, oh, my God, that's Artemis. You know, that's the the physical embodiment of, of Artemis. So Artemis doesn't get a lot of popular culture time. Um, and whenever we see her again, she's very, very one dimensional. So I hope that you've seen um, that she can be so much, so much more, so much more. And I think that there could be entire films made of just her actions. So I'm going to leave you here with, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, with a, a, a copy of the cover of my book that's now available on Amazon and iTunes and iBooks and all these great places where you can buy books or purchase books, eBooks or paper books. But I want to tell you the story. Remember, I promised you at the beginning of the podcast that I would tell you the story of how Artemis seeks justice, uh, particularly around Leto. Um, and then, of course, Acteon, which is a famous story. But I want to tell you the story of the way that she addresses the offenses made against her mother. Now, like I said, you know, there are several stories 
of men who attempted to harm Leto while she was pregnant with the twins. But there's a couple of stories in which Artemis and Apollo seek their vengeance. So in Southern Greece, for example, Laimon, who was an Arcadian man, convinced his people to expel the pregnant goddess Leto when she came to their village or their land seeking refuge. Later, obviously after they're born, Artemis and her, and her brother return to Arcadia seeking to avenge their mother. And out of fear of accusation, Laimon, the coward, kills his own brother and pretends that he has already taken vengeance for the twins. You know, he's like, oh, I, I've already killed my brother who was really the one that really kicked your mother out. It wasn't me. And Artemis, who sees right through him, sees his guilt, is so enraged with his arrogance and his heartlessness in the treatment of his mother, or her mother, that she strikes him down with her deadly arrows. Okay. So she doesn't even, you know, she, like I said, she's judge, jury, justice, right? She sees his guilt and she doesn't need any confirmation. She kills him and says, yep, that's it. That's done. Good, rid good riddance. Now, it's interesting that Leto had a hard time finding a place to rest and give birth to the twins. Um, to me, on some, on some level, this story uh, can, later, can later be seen echoing uh, when the Virgin Mary, for example, is looking for shelter to give birth to Jesus, and no one will no one will shelter her. Him. Uh, and actually, there is another story in which, in her search for a place to give birth, Leto is continually pursued by a giant dragon serpent, Pythion of Phocis. So he's known to be the guardian of Delphi or Delphi, um, and after. Like I said, after the, uh, the birth, Artemis and Apollo find this python serpent and exact revenge by slaying the monster with their arrows, okay? So actually, this is a really interesting connection because, of course, the serpent, remember we talked about how the serpent has such an interesting relationship to the divine feminine and then how, you know, biblically, the serpent also plays such a key role with knowledge and curiosity. And I've told you how the serpent is connected to Isis and Horus. And it's interesting that here in the later aspect of Artemis, we have her slaying the serpent, you know, slaying the monster. So there's a lot of um, these associations between uh, Leto and later stories that make it into biblical text, which is kind of interesting, I think, right? Very, very interesting. And like I said, the other, the other interesting aspect is how Artemis and uh, supposedly with her brother Apollo return to make sure that they offer justice, okay, um, for the pain that they had, or, or yeah, the pain that they had inflicted on her mother. Um, I have, I was just thinking of another story with, um, that, that Pindar tells us, uh, about, uh, Titius. So Titius saw Leto when she came to Pytho and he, in a fit of passion, he tried to embrace her. Okay. But she called out to her children. So this is after they were born, you know, Leto is, you know, just walking, making her way back to wherever she uh, is going and um, she calls to her children and her children arrive and shoot him dead with arrows. In fact, they, they punish him so severely that even in death, 
vultures feast on his heart in Hades' realm. So Pindar tells us the story, it's story I just remembered of her of punishing uh, Titus to an eternity of torture and pain because he dared to try and rape and seduce her mother uh, without consent. And I think that Artemis doesn't get enough credit for the amount of times that she passes justice on men who don't understand consent and who try to assault women or, you know, treat women badly or, you know, punish women or whatever. Um, Artemis has always been a vengeful protector. Now, in this case, of course, it's of her mother, but you can imagine, for example, if you've ever heard the, um, the story of Acteon, um, who was sneaking up on the goddess while she was bathing and he accidentally saw her naked. And then he tried to, so he's hunting and um, in the woods and he comes across her and then he, he knows he shouldn't be looking, but of course he's tempted to look and she turns around and sees him and she turns him into a deer, which has so many metaphorical implications. Okay. Um, but the most cruel thing is she turns him into a deer, which his own hounds, because he was deer hunting, find, and his own friends actually who are deer hunting with him and the hounds. So the hounds find him, the hounds tear him to pieces while he tries to scream saying, I am Acteon, you know, don't do this, blah, blah. But of course he has no mouth. He's a deer. So the hounds tear him to pieces and his friends, the other hunters are like laughing and, and cheering on the hounds because they don't know it's Acteon. They think it's a deer. And of course, Acteon dies. So this sort of this, this violent punishment for, again, a transgression coming into a sacred a space of a woman, because I mean, she wasn't in her temple. She was just in the woods, although one could argue the woods are her sacred space, but like peeping at her while she was bathing or while she was taking off her clothes, getting ready to bathe, looking at her without permission. Um, and then the, the violence, the, the punishment that she immediately, immediately gives him. No, again, judge, jury, executioner. Um, she doesn't need anybody's, there, there's no trial. There's no, I'm sorry, I was just looking. There's nothing. She turns him into this deer and he suffers this terrible fate, um, this very cruel fate. Um, a lesson to all who would dare to sneak up either on her sacred space or on her or her nymphs naked. And in fact, she's known not just for punishing men, but also women. Anyone that um, is too, doesn't follow the rules or is too vain or is too, like, for example, Niobe and her children who brag about how Niobe brags about how she has the most beautiful children, more beautiful than Leto and how she herself is so beautiful and blah, blah, blah. And then Artemis and Apollo show up and they kill her and her children, which again is, is shocking and cruel. And, but again, swift justice, they don't, there is no trial. There is no explanation. There is nothing. Um, and so I think <laughs> I'd like to leave you with, I'd like to leave you with why I chose the title for my book, She Who Hunts. I wanted to do She Who Hunts and Kills, but then I thought that might be maybe a little too in your face. 
but she really does. Yeah, she hunts and kills. I mean, that is the purpose of the hunt, really, is to kill. And so what I want you to maybe by now and now, after all of this conversation, you know why um, I chose that title, because I think we think of her as hunting in the woods, you know, this young maiden hunting in the woods, but I don't think people understand the bloodiness of her rituals and worship of herself and the power that she had over life and death and the power that she had over those who worshiped her or ever anyone who dared to cross her. So she is a goddess that is often unforgiving, unforgiving, often unforgiving. And like I said, lives by her own rules, lives as she wants. She is actually, I would say, the most modern goddess or modern relevant goddess of the entire Greek, Greek pantheon. And so that being said, I would like to say thank you in closing for coming to my podcast and listening to it. I hope that you've enjoyed yourself. I'm sorry if this one dragged on a little bit longer. I could do hours and hours and hours. Um, I've written this book. And I still think that I've left out <laughs> information. Like every time I come across like that. So now, for example, my research in the summer, which I'm hoping to be able to fund either uh, socially or through the university, I want to go um, to Eastern Europe, uh, well, to Romania and some other places um, and also the Balkans and some other places where there are um, there's a worship of deer goddesses and forest goddesses. I know right now things are a bit uh, tumultuous, of course, in Eastern Europe. Of course, we all know that. But I'm hoping that things will improve with the peace talks and, and other things that the world is working on. So I would like to go there because there is so much of the Slavic and Balkan forest divinities and bear and deer divinities that I think are directly connected to Artemis. And so for my next book or my next research, we'll see if it turns into a book, I would like to connect her to some of the places that she's never been connected to before, because the more I come across this information, the more I see her in this practices that they have in these areas. And so I feel like she is a divinity for which research is never ending. And that constantly fascinates me. You know, her worship fascinates me, perhaps because the wilderness and the forest and animals fascinate me. So I don't know, but there is something about her that fascinates me and that continues to fascinate me. You know, sometimes you study something and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm over that. But no, I am not over her. <laughs> I am not over her. Um, and so I'm building this, the Artemis Center, for example, which is going to be an institution of learning um, in her honor. And then, you know, this writing book, this book, and, and hopefully future books in her honor as well. And just trying to establish, I think, an, a scholarship for her and for her traditions and worships and rituals um, as sort of my, my fundamental um, work of research. Of course, like, as you know, there are other goddesses and other things that I enjoy talking about and teaching about, but, um, but she remains fundamental. So thank you so much for coming to my podcast. I would like to say that actually Artemis is the last of our goddess series for the season. 
we'll come back to the goddesses uh, series in season two, where we'll do four other goddesses. Uh, the next uh, series that we're going to do is symbols. So we're going to do four weeks of symbols. So we're going to do caves, triangles, trees, and snakes. Yeah, those are going to be the four symbols that we're going to do in the coming weeks. So I think we're going to start with caves. I think you're going to find caves <laughs> immensely fascinating. Uh, so I'm very excited to bring that to you next week. In the meantime, again, please feel free to share this, um, to rate it, um, contact me on IG or wherever you're listening to this or wherever you can. And let me know if you have any questions, any suggestions. If you come across anything that's interesting, please feel free to share uh, or send me a link. And um, that's it. Have a great day. And I will see you next week. All right. Bye, y'all.